1: You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. Whole Foods Market is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and the Department of Transportation's Summer Streets, a three-day series of events dedicated to healthy, active living on the car-free streets of New York City. Join us at the Whole Foods Market City Picnic Area on 24th Street and Park Avenue the first three Saturdays in August. Find more information at the DOT's website, keyword Summer Streets. Wait. Welcome
2: to Live Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you every Tuesday, except the last three ones, from 12 to 12.45. Uh, I am in Roberta's, uh, but uh, Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez, uh, you know, the the motor of the Cooking Issues bus, is uh, actually going to call in from North Carolina, from the Outer Banks, but I think she's having some technical issues. We'll get her when she comes in. Uh, let me call in all your questions, by the way, all your live questions to 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128. So I'll take the first question first, and that's from Ross McGuire from Dublin. I'm excited to have a, uh, someone who listens in Dublin. I've only uh, managed to go to Ireland once, and I only got to spend a couple hours in Dublin, which is preposterous because, from all accounts, it's a great city, uh, and I'm anxious to go back. So, uh, very excited. I'm getting a question from Dublin and was wondering... Are we still on? I was wondering if you and Dave are still doing cooking issues. Uh, uh, Nastasha and Dave are still doing cooking issues on Heritage Radio. I pick it up as a podcast, and it's become a huge favorite of mine every week. Uh, And Dave, we have been a source of inspiration, which we appreciate. Uh, Ross thinks he's stuck in Dublin. I would say you are lucky to be in Dublin. Uh, And anyway, he's hoping that uh, we're coming back sometime soon. Well, here we are. Uh, And uh, I'll tell you why, Ross, that we haven't been on for the past three weeks. Uh, The past three Tuesdays in a row... I have been in transit uh, from one place to the other. Three Tuesdays ago, I was flying back from California because uh, I was uh, lucky enough to go shoot a a pilot for uh, ABC. God knows if it'll ever get get aired, um, but it was a, a cooking-based thing out where I, I was a judge. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to talk about it, except for I will tell you that I have tasted peacock now, whereas I hadn't tasted it before. Peacock, as you might know, was one of the uh, animals that was highly prized uh, as a foodstuff from the Roman times, perhaps before, but I, I know from the Roman times uh, up through um, the you know Middle Ages primarily because it's a really amazing looking bird, because by all accounts, uh, it didn't taste very good. It was kind of dry and stringy, especially using the cooking uh, techniques of the time. And I have to say, it, you know, has the ability to become a very tough, stringy bird, but it... um, from my experience over the past couple of weeks, can be cooked properly. And then the last two weeks, I've been en route uh, from and to Florida, where the main uh, business I did down there, I did uh, actually, if you guys have, uh, are familiar with the uh, truck, you know, the food truck uh, explosion that's been going on, one of the best ones uh, around is a gastropod in Miami done by uh, Chef Bear, uh, Jeremiah Bullfrog, and we did a, uh, you know, a... a an event together in Miami where I did cocktails along with uh, Chad Zilla crew, if you know that blog. Uh, and it was a really good time. Uh, but I also went down there with Harold McGee and Nastasha to taste uh, exotic fruits and mangoes. And we had some of the most amazing mangoes. We unfortunately, because we were caught in a torrential, torrential downpour both days in a row, only got to sample maybe, I haven't really counted yet, but maybe 60 to 80 types of mangoes. I, usually, I like to do at least 100 In a one or two day tasting, just so you can get the kind of a full uh, variety of different kinds of flavors that a particular fruit can can do. So, you know, when we did citrus, we did a one day citrus that was over 100 varieties. We did a two day apple that was over 200 varieties. A pear day that was 100 varieties. You know, it's a nice round number because then you could say that you know you've exhaustively tasted at least that many. And you really do get uh, you really after the first 40 or 50 get an idea of the range of flavors that can go on. But I had no idea how good a mango can be because the mangoes that are shipped up to New York uh, all go through a process, no matter where they come from, even if they come from Florida, of uh, going through a heat treatment to kill fruit flies and any other insects that might be nesting uh, in the – you know or you know whatever they do inside of the mango. So they're immersed in hot water and that hot water can uh, kill some of the aromas and also prevent uh, the natural ripening process from taking place exactly as it otherwise would have. Um, so basically – the mangoes we get can be okay, but they're never going to be the world's greatest mangoes. So, you know, went to Florida, got them off the tree, and in various ripenesses and various flavors. There's, there's a couple of different styles of mango, right? They roughly break down into ones that have derived from the Indian, uh, Indian mangoes, ones that have derived from Southeast Asian, like Thai style mangoes, uh, and then there's a bunch of Florida mangoes that are kind of their own thing that are, are, are hybrids of those that have been brought in, but also Egyptian mangoes, delicious. So there's a, a wide variety of mangoes, and I hope to have a, a blog post on that soon. But, I, you know, I was amazed at the kind of different flavors that could come out of a mango. There's one that tastes like a creamsicle, many, many that have a, like a, a coconut, t- I mean, just amazing, amazing stuff. Anyway, uh, oh, Nastasha's online. Hey, Nastasha, how are you doing? Good, how are you? How are the Outer Banks?
3: Uh, it's actually not that humid down here. I'll give me I a you break. I'll
2: have you know I've been I, there. Okay. I ha- I'll have you know I've been there before. uh, But
3: you you know, I would tell you the truth. It's actually not that humid. So
2: it's, it's not humid. No, I mean, not right now. It's, it's about 85 right now. Yeah, but nothing feels humid when it's 85. Tell me when it gets up to 95 degrees. I will. I will. I'll check back in. in See, I, I, here's what I don't want to know. I don't want to know, is it comfortable? That is a useless piece of information to me. I want to know okay. the exact temperature and the humidity because, you know, 85 degrees, even when it's like a zillion percent humidity, especially because I know you're stepping into an air-conditioned uh, house when you step into it. So you're like, man, it feels great in this air-conditioned house. <laughs> no, I'm outside right now. I'm on a porch. You're on a porch right so. now? Yeah. And it's not humid? I mean, there's a little bit of moisture in the air, but not what I was expecting. Well, it's not 95 degrees yet. When's it going to get up to yes, be like... Ni- When's- like three, like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. All right. So at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, you know, I wish that everyone could be on the air so you can call me back. I could hear you gasping for breath while you tell me how not humid it is in the Outer Banks up there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm, super. I mean, look... Like I say, I've been there, and maybe, like, I happen to be there on the only summer that is so hot and humid that you want to die. In fact, like, even the green flies, which suck half of your blood in the 30 seconds that you're outside, if you're out near sunset, were too tired and lazy to come kill me. But uh, I somehow doubt that.
4: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> I'll check back with you. Yeah. You All have right. a lot of
2: yeah, well, I just answered Ross McGuire's question on uh, do we still exist, and happily yep. for us, we still we still do exist. Okay, mm-hmm. so, uh, by the way, I will re-give you the number in case someone just realized that we are live. Again, 718-497-2128, that's 718-497-2128, but I do have a lot of questions that came in in the interim while we were away, so I'll go right to it. Howard writes in with a question about papayas. I have a question about papayas. I've been eating a lot of papaya lately, which I can't get down with you on this because, Howard, because... I- I, some reason papaya is one of the fruits that I haven't learned to love. I just I can't. It's something about it that's not not me. I love love like like an un, unripe papaya as a crunchy element in a salad, things like that. But I haven't uh, figured out how to love. I don't hate them, but I haven't figured out how to love a ripe papaya. What about you, Nastasha? Yeah, I feel the same. But I do I do like the fact that they're good for stomach uh, ailments. So. Well, okay. I mean, you know how I feel about taking things for uh, food as medicine. You know how I feel about it, I but. But maybe it works. Who knows? God only knows. I certainly don't. Okay. I've been eating a lot of papaya lately, and usually... I, this is Howard, by the way, not me. And usually I peel and cut up the whole fruit and store it in the fridge. I've noticed that when I get to the bottom of my container, there's always a papaya jelly, presumably made from the papaya juices. Do you know what's going on there? Is there any way this phenomenon can be put to good use, i.e. in a cake, jello, etc.? All right, Howard. Because I don't eat a lot of papayas, I didn't have a lot of experience with this, so I had to do myself some research. My first uh, th- you know, theory was... You know, one of the main things in uh, papaya that is useful is a a protein. A protein breaking down enzyme a protease called papain which is used as a meat tenderizer now usually when you break down proteins um what what happens is is they break gels you break proteins down and they lose their strength except in certain situations you can partially break down a protein and as actually cause it to gel and actually papain is used in certain tests for that for gelling soy soy proteins so uh at first i thought maybe that was what's going on but then i was like nah there's not that much protein in the papaya and i don't really know how that would work then I was thinking perhaps you were getting a low-temperature yeast or bacteria in there. And I was like, meh, no. But then I came across an article that you are going to enjoy called Stability Studies of Papaya Pectin, e- e- pectin Esterase. All right. It is a known fact in, uh, that papaya has extremely active pectin esterase enzyme in it. I'd only known about, only known about the protein breaking down enzyme, the, the papain. But, and to Nastasha's point, a lot of people take papaya because of it, it has lots of bioactive molecules in it more than many fruits okay and pectinesterase is a is and a lot of fruits have it but i guess not in the same quantity and not the same activity what pectinesterase does is actually joins pectins together making them bigger and uh actually does it do that no does it join them no it just just strengthens them i don't think it actually polymerizes them ah who knows i don't know but it makes them stronger and uh what happens is is that um papaya can self-gel based on the activity of this pectin- pectinesterase once the, uh, once the juice has been released from it. I will read you the first paragraph of this. Papaya pectinesterase is a pectic enzyme which has important influence on the quality and stability of processed papaya products. A short period after papaya is pulped into puree, a gel is formed. This gel formation has been attributed to the enzymatic action of pectinesterase by uh, Yamamoto and Inoue in 1963. Pectinesterase is also a great concern to the citrus industry since it has definitely been established that it can cause clarification of citrus juices and gelation of concentrates which is interesting to me. I've never thought of using it as a, as a way to clarify. Of course I have, I have I use the opposite enzyme. I use um, I use a uh, wait shoot, pectinesterase Anyway, yeah, I use I use one that breaks down. I use one that breaks down pectins uh, to uh, clarify things. But anyway, so that seems to me to be your answer. I don't. What it's basically doing is making a stronger pectin uh, out of it, a pectin gel. So I don't know that you could use it in cake or Jello, but maybe you could make up a papaya juice and have it gel on its own a, as a good jelly. I don't know what the texture of uh, of it is, but Howard, hopefully this answers your question. And it's very intriguing. Something that I might uh, study more. Maybe I'll even learn to like papaya. What do you think, uh, Nastasia?
1: Maybe. Maybe if we tried a lot of papayas, we'd find one that we like.
2: That's possible. We'll try a couple hundred papayas. There were a couple down in Florida when we tried that, but, you know, I just didn't even look at them. I didn't even bother, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, see, see, yeah,
2: You know what's another one? You know what's another one? Here's one that that ticks me off. Guava, right? People just say mm. people just say guava. I mean, what the hell does that mean? Like, the different guavas taste so stupidly different that to just say guava, I mean, doesn't really make any any sense cuz i'd never been a huge guava person as a fresh fruit. i've had lots of guava juices that i like, but i've you know i have never been a huge kind of fresh guava person, but then the last two times we visited florida, at taste we had really kind of interesting guavas, right?
3: Yeah. But like yeah, un-
2: unrelated yeah. in taste to each other, right? I mean some were very acidic like the cast that we had, some were kind of yeah. you know so lacking in acidity that i found them kind of sweet and insipid. I really hate fruit that just has sweet with no acidity. Do you know what i mean, don't you? Yes, I know. That. I know you do. Oh, I detest it. Hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would much rather, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I'm that guy walking around eating the unripe berries off the trees and uh, hoping I don't die. I don't actually do that. I only do it if I know what the berries
3: and,
2: are. And getting poison ivy. Getting poison ivy. Yes, yes. That's a story for, story for later. Okay. Uh, Aaron Oster, uh, formerly of Salou Maria. Where is he now? Oh, gosh. I don't remember another salumi place. Good job, good job, good job remembering. Anyway, Aaron Oster writes in about round Cambros and coffee. I hope all's well. I was seeing you the other day. I'm writing because I have a question for Dave. I think only he can answer, although that's probably not true. Uh, is there any advantage for making iced coffee via the 12 to 16 hour steep method in a round Cambro versus a square one? A Cambro, for all of you who don't use Cambros, is basically just either square or round plastic food containers that have marks of like quarts and liters on the side, and they're very common in professional kitchens. Uh, you know. We typically use the 4, the 7, and the 22 liter, uh, 22 quart Cambros uh, the most, uh, but they, you know, that's what that's what he's talking about. Anyway, uh, wants to know whether there's a difference in using the round or the square. The steep method is the, it, here's the steep me- method he uses. Add ground coffee to room temperature, uh, add ground coffee to room temperature water, stir, uh, and let it sit overnight at room temperature. Next morning, filter the coffee through a super fine mesh, and what you're left with is super rich and deep coffee with all the top notes of the coffee and supposedly less bitterness. This is a study that's been, this is by the way, a type of coffee that's become extremely popular uh, over the past, you know, several years, and a lot of really high-powered people are uh, investigating it. I know Harold McGee is Investigating it, Don Lee is investigating. A bunch of people are investigating it. Uh, you want all of the recipes. They all seem to say that they use circular containers. He's wondering whether the circular versus the round makes a difference. I don't think that it makes a difference in terms of the steep, but I haven't done it myself, so I don't know whether or not the actual filtration becomes uh, more or less difficult. And I'll give you a story. When we're using an enzyme to break down the pectin in juices, like apple juice, and then letting it set down in the bottom of the uh, container – what ends up happening is we always use round containers because when you pick up the container and move it to start, you know, decanting the clearer stuff that doesn't have the particles off of the top. If you have a square container and you pick it up, the corners start mixing the fluid as you turn it. It acts almost like a mixer because the fluid's in a square shape. And as you turn it, right, the corners kind of start moving the fluid. Whereas if you use a round container and pick it up, you can pick it up and spin it, and basically you don't end up stirring the product you move it very little so the grounds don't get kicked up The the particles don't get kicked up off of the bottom so if you're getting advantage with this coffee in terms of your filtration by being able to dump relatively clear stuff off of the top before all the particles go into your fine mesh strainer right if that's going to increase your filtration efficiency or perhaps even change the taste of it right then i would definitely recommend going round uh but if you're you know stirring it right before you're going to pour it anyway right you haven't let it settle for a long time and you're not extremely careful to just decant just the top liquid off the top before you start then i would say it doesn't matter whether it's square or round i don't think it's going to actually make a difference in terms of how it infuses it's just a question of how you're going to pour the liquid off the top that make sense what do you think Nastasha? yeah that
3: makes sense Uh,
2: sense. all right Now, I have many more questions, but I'm going to go to my first commercial break and we'll come back and answer them. Calling all your questions to 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128 Cooking Issues. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call your questions to 718 That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Jack, good choice of break music. Very good. Yeah. yeah, was, yeah. Were you dancing? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I was, you know, feet yeah. pounding, fist pumping. Was that, was that Jack or was that you, Nistasha, who picked that? No, no, I, that was Jack. Nah, nice. Good call. We should let him pick it all. Should, anyway. Uh... Chris Anderson writes in with a vacuum sealing question. Hey, Dave, I have a mini-pack 31, uh, I guess, MVs. He just writes 31X. Chamber uh, vacuum sealer with gas flush. Wow, that's nice. Uh, the 31, by the way, is the small unit, which, uh, you know, I'm not saying that I'd like to get one for free, but I'd love to get one for free. It's, <laughs> I think it's the best uh, unit of that size that's available right now because it's very compact, but it has a much larger chamber size uh, for its size than the equivalent – other small small units that I've had I think it's like the best home vacuum unit Uh, you know or small small commercial I mean most restaurants I think would um, kind of outgrow it pretty quickly because of its limited size but for you know a house it would be perfect hint hint right Nastasha yeah yeah Uh, anyway uh what gas flush means by the way is that um after you seal a vacuum on it you pull a vacuum on it and you seal it uh the air comes back in if you have gas flush you can fill that bag with an inert gas usually nitrogen or depending on what you're doing co2 whatever mix different mixes of gas uh, you know if you're doing fish and you want to be uh you know you want to really ruin everybody you can put carbon monoxide in there to make it keep red or if you want to do that to meat, if you want to rip off your customer you can do that too anyway uh don't do that um so, but with the gas flush, you can do that, and the cool thing is, you can then package things like potato chips, and they don't get crushed because you know there's extra uh, gas in there, but it's totally dry gas, so you're not—it's not, not going to go stale, it's not going to oxidize. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. Uh, Anyway, I I have some uh, – he has some bulk flour and a few other powder-like ingredients that he wants to vacuum seal to prevent oxidation. Uh, His concern is that fine particles are going to disperse throughout the chamber either during the vacuum or during the nitrogen backfill. Any tips for preventing this? Well – Uh, You're not going to have a problem with the powder during the vacuum cycle. I've never – the only thing I've had even minor problems with was some spray-dried vinegar powder, which is extremely fine and really wants to fly all over the room. Like you can't – if you pour it into a container – it like, you know, it comes out of the container and chokes you, you know, I, like uh, it's cra- crazy stuff. And I vacuum sealed that with only minimal kind of dust issues, uh, like hardly any problems uh, at all uh, because the vacuum isn't getting – like first of all, the, the bag is there. The vacuum isn't sucking directly out of the bag. It's sucking, uh, you know, through a hole which then is dispersed over the entire chamber. So you get very little actual movement of uh, particles out of the bag and it hasn't been in my experience a problem. Here's where the problem happens. When you take a very fine powder and you vacuum it on a high vacuum, uh, when, you, when you let the air back in, the, um, the stuff gets squashed really flat. Uh, and so you can have caking and pelleting problems with the powder like it forms clumps when you uncut the bag to use it later. And that's been my main problem uh, with things like uh, transglutaminase or with the vinegar powder is that I get clumping after I vacuum. Now, I'm trying to think of a decent way to because what happens when you do a gas flush is the gas comes in via like depending on your unit like one two or three little tubes that are in the bag and they come in with enough force to really kind of like i've had bags that weren't like uh you know held on properly rocket across the machine uh and you know spray their contents everywhere so you're going to want to and I don't know whether you're going to be able to get around uh, this problem. What I would do is – because you need it to go in the bag and not just fill the entire chamber, right? You need the gas to go directly in the bag. You could try to put little diffusers over the front of the gas jets, turn the flow way down and the pressure way down so that you don't get a lot of spray. But you might have a problem doing um, doing a gas flush. Now, that said, you're only going to need a tiny bit of gas in there to prevent it from compacting and therefore causing clums. So you might not need that much gas, but you're definitely going to need to put uh, kind of diffuser plates on it or it's going to kind of fire across and going to cause uh, problems. Um, but you're not going to have a problem if you don't use any any gas flush on it. He writes, on a related note, do you have any experience – oh, my iPad just turned off. Uh, on a related note, do you have any experience with oxygen absorbers that are sold in little packets like desiccants? Do they actually work and are they food safe? All right. Uh, a couple. I don't have – he's talking about oxygen scavengers that like physically prevent oxidation by being in the package and just having a stronger affinity for the oxygen than your food does. And uh, they – I don't know whether the particular ones you're looking at are food safe. I've never used them but they clearly definitely make food safe uh, oxygen um, you know, scavenging packets. And I will tell you a story that I probably shouldn't tell you because it was told to me by someone who must have had too much to drink who works for an oxygen scavenging package – Uh, company uh, a couple of years ago, uh, when I say a couple, like eight years ago, they once uh, were doing an oxygen scavenging uh, package, right? A little paper insert that sucked up oxygen for a major candy manufacturer that worked with peanut butter. Let's say Reese's peanut butter cups. Let's just say they were that. I'm not saying they were, but let's just say it was that. Uh, And what happened was, is they would put these things in to prevent the, the peanut butter from going rancid. And... Nobody liked the taste of these Reese's peanut butter cups because, uh, you know, they just didn't taste right. You know, they tasted not like Reese's peanut butter cups. And what it turns out is, is that the characteristic taste of a Reese's peanut butter cup is due to a certain amount of rancidity in the peanut butter and so you know one person's rancid is another person's rhesus now i love rhesus peanut butter cups and i'm sure a lot of uh, you out there do as well you wouldn't necessarily love it if i told you that what you were liking is rancid peanut butter because rancid has a negative connotation however um you know, if you didn't know it was rancid and you just said there was there was like some selective oxidation and aging of the peanut butter to make delicious Reese's peanut butter cups, maybe you'd like it better. But the term rancid is so loaded that uh, that has a problem. So anyway, long story short, they didn't use the oxygen scavenging packaging in the Reese's peanut butter cups anymore because people didn't like it. Um, so yes, they are food safe. No, I don't have any uh, experience with them. Um, Okay. Have a question in from Anonymous. Hello, Anonymous. About sealing vegetables. I recently got an immersion circulator and I'm cooking a lot of vegetables and they're floating to the top. Is there any way to safely keep vegetables under the water so I can get the most out of my machine? I'm assuming uh, they mean the vacuum machine because when you're cooking, uh, I I don't know... Here's the problem. When you take a vegetable and you put it in a vacuum bag, or even if you try to do it in a Ziploc or whatever, um, vegetables have a lot of air on the inside of them naturally, right? So things like carrots, they float in water because there's air. What happens when you seal them in a bag and then cook them and heat them, the air that's in them expands and escapes and inflates the bag. And then the bag floats to the top and does two things. One, it makes it very difficult to have it cook uh, evenly because the top of the bag's out of the water and it doesn't get hot. Uh, uh, and they also take up a lot of space and they're ungainly on you know, – pain, they're pain in the butt. So there's a couple things you can do. If you have a vacuum machine, I recommend sucking a hard, hardcore vacuum on those things, super hardcore vacuum. If you suck a really hardcore vacuum on it, you might be able to get an, – and when I say that, means whatever the full vacuum is plus an extra 30 seconds. You'll be able to get enough of the air out to uh, get them to s- sink down to the bottom and stay somewhat near the bottom. They're still going to inflate a little bit when they get really hot. Um, another technique you can use – and by the way, when you suck that kind of a hardcore vacuum on it, also any flavor you put into the bag, whether it be oil or with carrots, something like orange juice, will get injected further into the carrot and you'll get more of that flavor uh, transfer. Another thing you can do, and this is from Hervé Malivère, our friend at the French Culinary Institute, is you can take some stainless steel knives and throw them in you – know, uh, you know, butter knives uh, and throw that, – because that, they're not sharp uh, or, you know, and they're heavier than spoons. And I throw them into the bag and seal them with the bag and that will drop your thing to the bottom like a stone even though it's filling with air if you have enough knives and he does that all the time if you don't want it in with your vegetables you can even seal the knives in like a bottom section of your bag and then seal uh, the vegetables on top of it so the knives aren't directly touching and he does this also when he's wrapping um, things like um, like uh, when we do uh, like roulades of meat and we hand roll them in, in a plastic wrap and drop them those rolls sometimes have a tendency to float so what he'll do is he'll take the roll and he'll roll it in plastic wrap and then he'll take like five Six butter knives, and depending on the size of the item, and he, then he'll put those, and then he'll roll another layer of plastic wrap around that and around the knives, and bang, those things drop right to the bottom. So it's a really good solution. When you're, um, but that I mean that's basically what I recommend. You got to weight the thing down. Even with a very high seal on something, uh, you're still going to get some air coming out of the bag at high temperatures, and, and you have to cook vegetables at high temperatures, 85 Celsius and above. So it, it really, it, it, it's a tough problem, but not insurmountable. So you know, also you have to cook vegetables, if you don't add a lot of liquid to the bag, which you're probably not, because otherwise, why are you cooking them in a vacuum bag anyway? Uh, you, you know, you're know, you probably trying to concentrate the flavor of the, of the vegetable and or add another one. You have to cook it for a lot longer, because uh, it takes longer for the, um, the vegetable to break down, even at high temperature, in the absence of excess water. Uh, okay. So, uh, Victoria Sen writes in about dehydrated fruit sheets. Hi, Nastasha and Dave. I'm planning on making sheets of dehydrated fruits, spices, and seeds. I'd like it not to be, uh, fruit leather, but to be crispy. I think the recipe I have is going to change the colors. I want to keep the color of the mixes, but also have it, uh, dehydrated so it's flexible when it's baked, but then shaped and gets hard. Similar to a fortune cookie. The base, uh, that she's using is similar to a tweel base, but the problem is the color changes to a dark brown. Is there a recipe or an Ingredient I can use to keep the color of these mixes after they're dehydrated or baked, yet still maintain a crispy, textured end product. Thanks, Victoria. Okay, uh, here's the main problem: fruit leathers are done at a low temperature, and they always have uh, a lot of sugar in them that haven't had all the water driven off because they're done at low temperature. That is why they are always flexible. Okay, the higher temperature products that you're doing, there, twill batters, right, are based on driving off the uh, liquid and almost you know turning the sugar into you know almost like caramelizing the sugar, which is why they're brown, right? Uh, along with you know if there's any you know, other things that turn brown in it, like milk solids and whatever. And when they are heated, you're basically melting it, and then you can form it, and then you let it cool, and it gets hard again, right? That's how fortune cookies work, but that's why they turn brown. So. Uh, One thing I would do uh, to change it and still have it be crispy is switch from sugar to isomalt. If you use isomalt, isomalt browns a lot less uh, than sugar when it gets cooked up uh, to those higher temperatures. I'd also say you could switch to a non-tweel, like almost like uh, some of these dehydrated maltodextrin things. Problem is, they might not be as flexible when they when they when they dry down. what I would like you to do is send me the actual recipe you're using because I looked up some uh, there are some crunchy fruit um, fruit sheet recipes out there uh, based on you know fruit isomalt and maltodextrin, uh, but I don't know exactly the recipe you're using, so I don't I can't really troubleshoot it. But my guess is is that your un, your flexible recipes that don't get too hard aren't cooked to a high enough temperature, and your other ones you're getting browning of the sugar from cooking at a high temperature. And you might be able to solve it by moving to an isomalt, although it will make it less sweet. Uh, anyway, so hopefully that helps, and uh, give us a call, uh, give us a, an email with the recipe you're using, and maybe we can help you even more. Uh, in a similar vein. Mike writes in and says, hello, Uh, has cooking issues been taken off the air? No, I have not been uh, taking off the air. He misses it. We appreciate that. We're back. Don't worry. My question is, how can I help keeping my homemade marshmallows from sticking together after I've cut them and cover them with cornstarch and powdered sugar? He uses a one-to-one ratio of cornstarch and powdered sugar to cover the marshmallows after they're set. Uh, He has been using a recipe that he found uh, online, and I – I wish I, could, I had it with me. For some reason, when I pasted it in, the, the URL didn't show up, or I'd tell you whose recipe he used. Uh, I've increased the size of the recipe 30% to fill a half sheet pan, and I always use a scale to measure, uh, thereby saying he doesn't think it's a problem with the recipe. Do we have any uh, help? Okay. The recipe that uh, he's following online, which I apologize I don't have the uh, site for because it didn't show up on my, on my iPad um, – Uses uh, as you know most of these do, and it's an egg white and gelatin mixture with uh, sugar that you cook up, you know, to candy stage, and then you you beat it in the gelatin, the egg white, the sugar. It sets up uh, as a foam, and then it's cut and or dolloped or whatever, and, and then put into a cornstarch and sugar uh, mixture. Now, if your if your marshmallows are too wet, right, and you need more structure, you can up the gelatin one. You can or. You can uh, increase the cooking temperature of the sugar to a certain point, right? But if you like the texture that you're getting and all you want to do is make it less sticky, right, then what you need to do is work on the coating problem. Now, all marshmallows are too uh, syrupy on the inside, really, you know, too um, sticky on the inside, uh, you know, to have them not stick if you're actually going to touch the inside of a marshmallow. Otherwise, it would be the same as the marshmallows that are in, you know, cereal boxes, which are 100 percent desiccated, right? Although I like those. Do you like those, Nastasha? Yeah, yeah, me too uh, I mean, they're not really marshmallows And by the way, I mean, they kind of are I mean, they're marshmallow-like things but they're kind of more like little meringue with marshmallow tasting. But some, I got addicted to those suckers when I was a kid. And I once called one of those uh, cereal companies to see whether I could buy just the marshmallows for a project I was working on. I was trying to make the world's first meat-based breakfast cereal with uh, pork rinds. It was called Piggles and Beanies. It was, it was sweetened uh, pork rinds with uh, little pork rind pieces with, with bean-shaped marshmallows. And this was, you know, back, you know, I don't know, high school or college or something like that, you know, 90s, early 90s. And uh, and uh, they would not ship me uh, or, or let me buy any marshmallows from them. This was before I had enough technical knowledge to do it on my own. Isn't that mean? It's really mean. So it's mean. So weird. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going into the cereal business. They could have at least just sold. I was like, listen, I'll choose whatever the closest marshmallow you have in your, like, line of, like, cereal marshmallows to a kidney bean shaped. And... Uh, you know, this is before I even knew how to make my own pork rinds. I mean, I'm, I was literally, like, either in college or, like, right around. You know what I mean? It's like, they could have helped me out a little bit. That's all I'm I used to save all the, the marshmallows to last in the milk so I could enjoy them. But did you ever, like, open the box and then break it down into marshmallows and not marshmallows? No, 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 no. Because it, fam- it was for the family, the whole cereal. Oh, well, you know, you know what, though? You, uh, how many people in the family there? Five? Five. Five? They couldn't have bought you your own box of cereal? I mean look cereal's expensive.
3: Cereal's like five ninety nine uh, yeah,
2: a box. Okay okay, look, here's my point. My point is this. You have people in the family, they're gonna eat the cereal anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you're gonna eat the cereal anyway, there's gonna be another box of cereal in a week anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So if the total quantity of cereal eaten is the same over a 6-month period, what does it matter whether each person has their own box or not? It's not like the stuff goes bad in a, in, in in a short amount of time. It's not like you're going to be able to not finish that box of blueberry within like, you know, the 6 months that it stays good.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
2: Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, in your next life, you can bring up that argument. See, that's what I'm good for, Nastasha. I'm good for that kind of logical-based argument. That's That's what I'm good yeah. at. Okay, so back to the marshmallow problem. Marshmallows are sticky on the inside. So what they are is a problem in controlled dehydration. You want to just have the outside be dry so they don't stick together. The problem with using a one-to-one powdered sugar and uh, cornstarch mixture, and, and I read the, the, the person's recipe online, and the reason they use a mixture is they thought the cornstarch by itself was too chalky on the outside, especially because it's there in a large quantity, right? But the problem with powdered sugar is that powdered sugar is uh, going to suck up moisture from the atmosphere and from the marshmallow, and it's going to be get tacky on the outside. I just, there's no way around it. Like, short-term, it's going to work, but long-term, it's going to cause problems with things getting sticky. That is my feeling. Now, you could try it with a, a straight-up cornstarch, but then you might think it's too chalky. I did some research on industrial marshmallow production, uh, Mike, and I have the answer for you. Here's what you're going to do the next time. I have not tested this, but I am so confident that I'm going to tell you on the air that this is going to work, because I felt so confident that I, I, I can't... In fact, I might make it sometime soon. Here's what you do. You take the marshmallows, right? And you make sure you follow all the recipes. Like another way marshmallows can go bad is if you don't beat them until they're cool, all that, you know, all that nonsense, right? Whatever. Whatever the recipe says, just do it. Because if the recipe works, the recipe probably works. Now, instead of putting it into a mixture of cornstarch and sugar, right? Like a day before you do it or like a couple hours, bef- you know, day before you do it, bake out some cornstarch in the oven to make sure it's really dry. Seal it in quart containers and let it cool down, right? Now you have dry cornstarch. Take your uh, marshmallows, right, and then dust them into pure um, into pure powdered sugar, right. Now shake off the extra powdered sugar dust. Now throw them into cornstarch. And then let them sit there with the cornstarch on them, right, for like four or five hours up to a day, depending on how much you want to dehydrate the, mar- the outside layer of the marshmallow. Now, what you're doing is, is you're letting the sugar still be the taste thing on the outside, but you're using the cornstarch as a desiccant to desiccate the outside of the marshmallow a little bit so they won't be tacky, but you're not going to pick up as much cornstarch into the marshmallow itself proper because it already has that protective layer of powdered sugar. Huh? 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 What do you think? <laughs> that's good. Apparently, that's how good. the big folks do it. You know, what, what they do is they, they, they uh, basically do it all under pressure and inject the marshmallow from a, from a tube. It expands automatically, is cut, dropped into powdered sugar, and then uh, put into a cornstarch mixture to dehydrate as, as it comes out. So I'm thinking that that, Mike, is the way to get your marshmallow problem solved. Uh, okay. Paul, wait. Hey, should we do one more commercial break? Yeah, we do a break. All right, one more commercial break. Call in all your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues.
3: Just move on up toward your destination Though you
1: It's a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Hot Grease strives to bring sustainability, localized sourcing, and other forward-thinking schools of culinary thought to the minds and kitchens of everyday folk. Each week, Nicole Taylor's conversations cover the entire spectrum of food enthusiasts, from internationally renowned culinary masters to moms on a budget looking to impress their tiniest critics. Again, that's every Monday at 3.30 p.m., Hot Grease, on the Heritage Radio Network.
2: Hey, welcome back. Hey, Jack, that was uh, Move On Up. That's Curtis Mayfield, right? Yeah, Move On Up, Curtis Mayfield. Good tune. And I like the mixture of the Curtis Mayfield with the Hot Grease. The song seems to work with the Hot Grease, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else. I don't care whether you're a mom on a budget or not. Like 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 pleasing your kids—they are the pickiest little uh, pickiest little critics, aren't they? Pains and that's a that's a tough problem. Anyway, back to the questions. Nastasha, you still with us? Yes. Awesome. Uh, we got a question from Paul K uh, earlier today. This is the last question in that we got, uh, and it's not really a question so much as a comment. Uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, Hi, Nastasha. I thought I'd bring this article about human derived gelatin to Dave's attention, perhaps for the radio show. I'd like to hear his thoughts. Uh, and basically, what it is, it's a it's a new article called "New Strategy for Expression of Recombinant uh, Hydroxylated Human Derived Gelatin." Um, just came out. Uh, so basically, it's it's they what they do is they take uh, the R genes, human genes for producing uh, gelatin, you know, collagen, I guess, or gelatin, and they uh, inject it into a yeast. Uh, you know, they they put it into a yeast, and then they grow the yeast, and the yeast then just makes a hyperabundance of. Uh, hu- you know Human style gelatin But you know Obviously it hasn't Come out of a human No humans were killed For the gelatin uh, You know anyway So it's like That's, that's what they're doing uh, I'd like to hear his thoughts My first thought is If recombinant technology Allows greater quality control Why not use Animal gene derived Recombinant gelatin To avoid the controversy And creepiness I think the allergy thing Is a bit of a red herring So the reason uh, the, the point here is That the reason They're using Human derived gelatin For this Is they're trying to think of uh, they're, they're now looking At food apples for it, but originally this is for things like gel caps for medicine, and the idea being that there is less poly, uh, less of a possibility of a human um, immune response to gelatin that's derived from human tissue than from um, than from animal tissue. I think it's probably a red herring. I think that if it's actually a pure gelatin protein, you know, pure gelatin, that it's not going to have a lot of other extraneous stuff on it. That I mean, maybe there's a difference, but maybe there's not. I haven't read any studies on how many people are allergic to gelatin. Maybe there's a lot, but I don't know. Uh, I, I haven't really, uh, I didn't really have the, the chance to look into it. Um, but the idea that we can have, because gelatin is is freaking fantastic, right? And there's a whole uh, there's a whole group of people. Vegetarians, uh, you know, who won't eat gelatin. So, you know, whether like the idea of a recombinant gelatin, whether it be you know bovine derived or human derived, uh, you know, the strain of it, uh, I think would be awesome because there's certain things that gelatin does better than anything else. Marshmallows, for instance. Now, you can use carrageenan, a mixture of carrageenan and, uh, you know, uh, locust bean and or other things, gum, to produce a marshmallow. Uh, But gelatin is really, really good. Also, for jello, gelatin is really, really good. Now, can you approximate jello using things like carrageenan? Yeah. But, you know, you know, is gel- gelatin is still kind of the reigning monarch of uh, taste in you know hydrocolloids? Like we, maybe it's because it's traditional and has been for so long that we just grew up loving it. But it's um, it's good stuff. So if they could make one uh, that was price competitive uh, and also had very consistent quality, because another problem with uh, regular gelatin is it's of differing qualities depending on the source where it was derived from, how basically hydrolyzed, how broken down the proteins are. And that's why you have different bloom strengths of gelatin because they're a naturally derived product and gelatin from a fish doesn't work the same as gelatin from a, you know, a pig skin or you know, animal, you know, cow bones or whatever. So they're all different and the processing uh, makes them all different. And So this is, you know, gives the possibility of having a very consistent uh, gelatin product where no animals are harmed. And I think it would be interesting. The real question is would a vegan use it? What do you think, Nastasha? Would a vegan use it? I mean the like, question no, is like, what is it, like why like, – in other words, like, what would be the – if you were a vegan, would you use it? I, I mean I would think you could but I don't, I don't know. Right? What do you think? I, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't... I can't think like a vegan, you know? I think that's that's the, the issue. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'd like to hear from some vegans and see whether or not they would be willing to use, uh, you know... Because so, you wouldn't have to harm the animal to get the, the DNA for it, right? You could just take a blood sample from a human or from whatever, get the gene, uh, you know, and do it. I mean, I think that... it um, be an interesting problem. I don't know. Um, yeah. But... Uh, definitely, I think, has a lot more commercial ap- application than the poop-derived meat analog. Uh, oh, I that... knew you were going to go there. Well, didn't we bring this up on the radio a couple of weeks ago? Somebody asked about it. Didn't we talk about Someone it? No
3: one asked. You didn't talk about it. I'm pretty sure you didn't talk about it, at least,
2: and I've done every show with you. We didn't talk about that? Well, it was a big thing on the Internet, so I'm sure a lot of you guys have uh, heard about this. uh, His crew in Japan was recycling sewage into uh, meat analogs, and uh, people were making much hay out of it on the Internet, but I don't really know enough to comment other than it's fun to say poop meat, right? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so uh, as some of you might know... I do, uh, a, you know, a, a little thing for Eater, like, you know, once every week or once every two weeks or something, uh, and the, recently they've had uh, some, they've started getting chefs to ask me some questions, but Nastasha, I don't know at this point where they're going to let me answer the rest of Michael Ascanis' the... Yes, they,
3: they want to know, they wanted to know today when you're going to answer the rest, but that's the rest of the show.
2: So. But I mean, the question is, should I just answer one now, online, and then... And then and then, because there's really only one that I really want to answer more than the ones I've already answered, I could just answer that one now, and and then talk to Michael about it, and then do a new chef for for them. What do you think?
3: I think they're kind of waiting for the the answers to be
2: answered online. All right, so I'm going to answer Michael Escalante's questions on malt, which I think are very, very interesting. Uh, you know, malt, as you may know, uh, I'm, su- I'm assuming most of our uh, listeners know, is what you make uh, you know, beer out of. So you take barley. I'll talk about it a little bit now and then I'll write about it. Uh, you take barley uh, and you grow it. You germinate it, right? And then you kill the, uh, you kill the growing uh, germ, the, kill the growing sprout on the inside before it pops out of the actual barley. And what you're doing there is activating all of the enzymes, the alpha and beta amylases being the primary ones. And those enzymes, then you, when you kill it, you gotta make sure that you kill it in such a way that you leave the enzymes in there. Uh, and then what you do is you grind it up and you steep it. Um, you know, at different temperatures and the temperature of the mash, that you the way you steep it, is what makes different kind of beers different along with how the malt is made and how it's kilned and, how, you know, what flavors are derived there. Uh, but anyway, it's the active enzymes in it that uh, allow you to convert the starch from barley or if you're, you know, adding other things to it like rice or whatever. They allow you to convert that starch to alcohol, right? Uh, sorry, to sugar, which then you use yeast, yeast to convert to alcohol. So the primary function of malt is, uh, the function of it is to produce these enzymes that can break, break starch into sugar. Uh, now, how the malt is treated, it, it makes it widely you know different in how much enzyme there is and also in the flavor of the malt itself it's a really tricky process and and most beer people many beer people i used to do all grain meaning i don't i used all my own grains and everything but very few people make their own malt because it's uh i don't know why very few people do it uh so malt is a very interesting subject now when most people are baking with malt they're either using uh like diastatic malt which they're adding to uh bakery products and what that is is malt that still has the active uh stuff in it, but it still has the active enzymes in it. And they do that to break some extra starch into sugars for yeast as a yeast food or a bacteria food in a starter. Um, but m- when, you, when I say malt to someone as an ingredient, what I'm thinking of is, dr- is dry malt extract. And what that is, is you take the malt and you then uh, – Convert all the starch to sugar using it with all the great flavors of malt. Like think Malta, the beverage Malta malt beverage, like that Malty flavor. And then uh, they before they let it ferment, they dry it out into a powder. And so if you're if you're doing what's called extract brewing, you take dry malt extract or still a liquid version of that extract, and they have amazing taste. Malt tastes amazing, uh, and that powder is a, an incredible, incredible ingredient, uh, which you know you can use not just to make beer. But you can use it as a sweetening multi agent. In it's great in mashed potatoes. Like I I've all, used to make malt mashed potatoes all the time, not with like the malted milk ball stuff but with dry malt extract direct from a brewing shop. Uh, and you can get these if you have a homebrew shop anywhere. Our Whole Foods here in New York City and Manhattan and lower Manhattan – uh, Bowery has dry malt extract, but it's a fantastic ingredient. So I'll write a little more and probably a little less stream of uh, consciousness uh, about malt when I answer Michael Esconis' other questions. Uh, we, we will be back next week. We hope not to have another three-week period where I'm flying around like a lunatic from place to place, and we apologize for any convenience we may have caused. Cooking issues!
1: Vicious, vicious vodka.
3: July 23rd, Bushwick Block Party. Block Party It's a party in the street. Free Pizza by Roberta. Death Killer Death Wrestling. Featuring the legendary Mad Dog Joe Stone. Photo Booth by Ryan Slack. Water World. Closed by Hymerodactyl. Mary Meyer. Warren Bogart. Death Killer Asphalt Resistant Gene for your face. Sweet Soda by p and Roberta's Bake Sale. Heritage Food <laughs> USA. R.N. Cheney Eating Contest by the R.N. Cheney Brothers. Live music by Alex Trugan. Florida Paper Twin. Gang Sign. The Netherlands. Team Roche Pierre. Wild Yak. MC Todd and Bo Breezy. Night Show. Yeah, yeah. Sponsored by... Martin Greenfield Clothers, Free Fitness Studio, Heritage Radio Network, Free Williamsburg, Six Point Beer, Momo Sushi Shack, Beer Box USA, Planet of the Bates, Bushwick Block Party. It's a party in the
4: street all day long. Figure on the Pulp and the City Winery are proud to present the Summer Barbecue Blowout Festival, August sixth, from noon to four PM. The barbecue is happening at City Winery, located at 155 Varick Street in New York City. Restaurants featured at this event are Empire Mayonnaise, Van Dag, Momofuku Mofar, Imperial No. 9, Myland, Mexicue, Craft, Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, The Meatball Shop, and Dos Toros. Providing the soundtrack for the day are Midnight Magic, Pewter Magic, New Villager, Punches, Ducky, DJ Autobot, and the Snacky Tune DJ. VIP and general admission tickets are available at citywinery.com. Finger in the poll for City Winery, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Heritage Foods USA, New York Magazine, Rake of Vodka, Sonar, Smile, Guilt City, Sub-Zero, and Wolf. Please come out and join us for a day of fun, food, and dancing. For more information, go to www.fotpnyc.com. is behind the scenes food news with Katie Kiefer. AMP goes local. The Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, commonly known as the AMP, that grocery chain you've seen all your life, has glommed onto the concept of local and sustainable and has just introduced a new consortium of producers known as the Mid-Atlantic Country Farms from which they will source beef and poultry. The animals are antibiotic and hormone-free, raised on vegetarian feed. There is no mention of certified humane or animal welfare approved uh, status, however maybe they haven't gotten that far in the marketing department but what makes this of interest is that AMP supplies all AMP supermarkets Pathmark, Food Emporium, Waldbaums and Superfresh these are not particularly high-end supermarkets so this is good news for the average consumer if you want to read more about this you can go to the AMP website which is www.apt.com/pressroom this has been behind the scenes food news with Katie Kiefer